Welcome to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast which outlines a life spent working with children and tells the stories of some amazing children and their families. I'm Chris. Please come and join me. Episode 9. Growing up in neurology. By now I was fully committed to a career in child neurology. I realised that I would need to start thinking about my next steps, and the idea of undertaking some formal research seemed interesting and exciting. I successfully applied for funding for a two-year research project, leading to the award of an MD. The project was at University College London, working in the area of neurophysiology. I started to make plans to move from Glasgow to London. Although I was excited about the prospect of living in London, I was very sad to think of leaving all my friends and colleagues in Glasgow. I continued to be fascinated by the variety of work that came my way, and I knew that I would be very sad to leave the warmth of spirit of the Glaswegian families. I was also uncertain about leaving clinical practice, albeit only for a relatively short period of time. The opportunity to undertake clinical work at University College Hospital, even if only in an on-call capacity, did afford some compensation. In the meantime, I continued with my outpatient work in neurology and my on-call duties in acute paediatrics at York Hill. One morning, at around 9.30, I received a phone call from my supervisor in London. He was deeply apologetic. He told me that the funding which had been in place for my research project had suddenly been pulled by the university, and that, at that time, he had no alternative source of funding. He told me that there was a fair prospect of finding alternative funding, but that could take two to three months to materialise. Given that I was due to leave Glasgow and move to London in two months' time, he advised that if I found an alternative option, he would not hold me to the appointment to the research post. I had deeply mixed feelings. Although I was devastated no longer to have the guaranteed post in London, there was a small part of me that was relieved that I didn't have to immediately move from Glasgow. However, I knew that I couldn't simply continue in my current post as a registrar, as I felt that I needed to be moving onwards and upwards. I began to look for other posts. At that time, there were relatively few centres providing training in paediatric neurology, it looked likely that I would need to move to England one way or another. There were registrar posts available at Great Ormond Street Hospital, but I didn't feel that I wanted to work there. Nevertheless, I felt that an application there was worthwhile. As I was about to make that application, there was an advert for a senior registrar post in Glasgow. I hadn't really considered applying for a senior registrar post. I felt that I was still relatively junior and I knew that there were several registrars in Glasgow who were more senior than I, and who would be more likely to be successful. Nevertheless, as I was keen to remain in Glasgow, I decided to apply for the post. The interview was harrowing. I found myself up against more senior colleagues who I greatly respected. Much to my enormous astonishment, though, I was successful in the interview, and was offered the post as a senior registrar. My registrar contract was due to expire in six weeks, just as I had been due to start in London. I therefore started as a senior registrar six weeks after the interview. In reality, this was the best decision I could have made. I didn't hear from my supervisor in London for a further five months. At that time, he confirmed that funding was available for the research post, 
but that it would not be in place for a further six months. This would have been a year later than I had originally planned. I decided not to pursue the opportunity to undertake formal research, as I realised that I was much happier in clinical medicine, and I was fully committed to the senior registrar post. Many years later, I still wonder what would have happened if I had moved to London at that time. I'm pretty sure life would have been very different. As a senior registrar, I was given much more responsibility. Effectively, I functioned independently, but I always had access to consultant support, teaching and advice. One of the things I had looked forward to was the opportunity to undertake on-call duties from home. At the time of my appointment, the middle-grade doctors in the hospital were registrars, and they were covered from home by senior registrars. Shortly before I started as a senior registrar, the decision was taken that senior registrars should be resident on call. This was clearly greatly to the benefit of the children. It meant that the registrars were able to focus much of their efforts on dealing with patients referred into the accident and emergency department, while senior registrars dealt with the sickest patients on the ward and took the bulk of the responsibility for the paediatric intensive care unit. It was on the intensive care unit that I met the first of a series of children that I was to encounter with a particular serious acute neurological disorder. Stephen was three and a half when I met him. He came in acutely one evening when I was on call. He was brought in by emergency ambulance following a sudden dramatic deterioration in his conscious level at home. When he arrived in the hospital, Stephen was deeply unconscious. He had had a seizure shortly before his admission. On admission, we did some urgent tests and found him to have an extremely low level of glucose in his blood. This is known as hypoglycemia. He was completely unresponsive. We corrected his blood glucose by giving glucose intravenously, but Stephen's conscious level did not improve at all. While we were stabilising his condition, I obtained a brief history from his mother. She told me that Stephen had been in contact with chickenpox two weeks earlier, and about five days ago he had started to develop the typical spots of chickenpox. He developed quite a high temperature and was generally unwell, and she treated him with aspirin, as was common in those days. She reported that he didn't seem too unwell, and although he was itchy and miserable because of the chickenpox, he'd been eating fairly well and had even managed to play a little. On the morning that he was admitted to hospital, though, he seemed much less well. He was cross and irritable and had vomited two or three times. At around 4.30 in the afternoon, Stephen had rapidly deteriorated. He stopped speaking and then very quickly became unresponsive. At this point, his mum called for an emergency ambulance. While she was waiting for the ambulance to arrive, Stephen had started to have a fit with violent jerking of all of his limbs. He was still fitting when the ambulance arrived, and the ambulance men treated the fit. Within five minutes of receiving treatment, the fit had stopped, but Stephen had remained profoundly unresponsive. The ambulance men reported that there had been no improvement in his condition throughout the entire journey to hospital. Because of Stephen's deep coma, we immediately intubated him and connected him to a ventilator. He was transferred to the intensive care unit. Shortly after arriving in the intensive care unit, we received the results from Stephen's blood tests. 
These confirmed that his blood sugar level had indeed been extremely low, although it had been fully corrected with intravenous glucose. Tests of his liver function showed that this was extremely abnormal, and the level of a waste product, ammonia, was very high in his bloodstream. Stephen had a brain scan which showed generalized brain swelling. The combination of the story given by his mum, the initial clinical findings, and the blood tests strongly suggested that Stephen was suffering from a condition known as Rye syndrome. This was a rare condition which we had been seeing fairly frequently over the previous 6 to 12 months. Because of some of the work being done in Glasgow and elsewhere, we knew that effective treatment of brain swelling to reduce intracranial pressure was key to ensuring a good outcome. The paediatric neurology consultant came in and inserted a tube into Stephen's brain through his skull to measure the pressure inside his head. This is known as intracranial pressure. As expected, the pressure was extremely high. We kept Stephen deeply sedated, monitored the electrical activity in his brain so that we could recognize and treat seizures, and aggressively treated the raised intracranial pressure. We knew that the most important thing we could do was to ensure that it was adequate blood and oxygen going to Stephen's brain. We had to ensure that his blood pressure was well maintained, as well as bringing down the intracranial pressure. I didn't leave the intensive care unit that night. The pressure inside Stephen's brain kept increasing, would come down in response to treatment, but then would increase again. However, we were able to keep the pressure measurements within the range that we were aiming for most of the time. By the following day, although Stephen's intracranial pressure still tended to be high, he was much less unstable and 24 hours later we were able to gradually start to reduce the powerful drugs that we were using to control his intracranial pressure. Stephen remained on the ventilator for a further 48 hours. By that time the pressure inside his head had largely returned to normal, and we were able to remove the pressure monitor. 24 hours later we started to reduce the amount of sedating medication that Stephen was receiving, and he gradually started to wake up. When Stephen had woken up sufficiently, he was able to come off the ventilator and then was transferred to the neurology ward where he received intensive rehabilitation therapy. In fact, Stephen was lucky and very rapidly improved to the extent that only three weeks after his admission he was able to go home. He was still very weak, was speaking very little and was extremely tired, but he appeared to be making very good progress. At this point, I'll tell you a little bit about Rye syndrome. Rye syndrome has been recognized for a long time. In fact, it was first described in Australia in 1963 in the prominent medical journal The Lancet by a Dr. Rye and colleagues. Cases have been recognized all over the world and reached a peak in the UK in the early to mid-1980s. There are several conditions which mimic Rye syndrome including genetic errors of the body's metabolic functions, known as inborn errors of metabolism. Following the ban on the use of aspirin in children under the age of 12 in 1986 in the UK, the incidence of the disease has dramatically declined, and it's now extremely rare. Having seen around 10 cases in the mid-1980s, I cannot remember seeing a single case myself since then, except where there is an underlying inborn error of metabolism. 
Typically, Reye's syndrome followed a viral illness, most commonly with influenza A or B or chickenpox, although many other viruses have been implicated. Not surprisingly, given this, the majority of cases occurred in winter months. There was a strong link with the use of aspirin. Although less than 0.1% of children taking aspirin ever developed Reye's syndrome, over 80% of those who did develop Reye's syndrome had taken aspirin within the preceding three weeks. The precise cause of Reye's syndrome is still not known, but it is probable that it occurs as a result of injury to mitochondria. Mitochondria are tiny structures within all human cells, except for red blood cells. They have an extremely important function in generating energy, and, as such, can be considered as the cell's batteries. They perform important chemical reactions involved with the conversion of glucose and oxygen to energy, and, as a result, injury to mitochondria leads to energy failure, and subsequently cell failure and cell death. It seems that Reye's syndrome occurred when injury to mitochondria happened in a susceptible child in the context of a preceding viral illness. Usually the affected child had recently been exposed to a substance which was toxic to mitochondria, aspirin being the most common. Although there was never proof that aspirin was directly causal of Reye's syndrome, there was clear evidence of an association and withdrawal of aspirin, as we previously discussed, has led to the almost complete disappearance of the condition. Children with Reye's syndrome usually develop vomiting shortly after the apparent resolution of viral symptoms. This is usually followed quickly by a deteriorating conscious level, with initial lethargy or restlessness leading to coma, often with seizures. Typically, there's a striking fall in blood glucose and a rise in blood ammonia, with development of liver failure. There is no specific diagnostic test for the condition, but the diagnosis is made by a combination of a typical clinical history, findings of a low blood sugar, raised ammonia and disordered liver function, after exclusion of other causes of the clinical picture, including infection or specific inborn errors of metabolism. There's no specific treatment for Reye's syndrome, but correction of hypoglycemia, Supportive therapy, including admission to the intensive care unit for intubation and ventilation, monitoring and treatment of raised intracranial pressure, and treatment of seizures are all extremely important. The outcome of the condition is dependent on the severity at presentation and on early recognition and intervention, particularly in controlling raised intracranial pressure. Careful attention to correcting abnormal biochemical function, including the low blood glucose and raised blood ammonia, are critical, as is maintaining blood pressure. In the early days, many children with Reye's syndrome died with a mortality rate of up to 50%. With early recognition and aggressive treatment, mortality improved to around 20%, although children under 5 remained at much higher risk of dying. In survivors, the outcome is relatively good, with around two-thirds recovering with little or no permanent neurological dysfunction. I continued to see Stephen as an outpatient. He did have some long-term consequences of his severe illness and had problems with balance and coordination, as well as mild difficulties with speech and learning. His parents invested an enormous amount of time with him and were incredibly positive as well as completely realistic about his difficulties. 
In the early stages after the illness, they arranged for Stephen to have private physiotherapy. As his motor difficulties improved, they were tireless in ensuring that he received appropriate help and support at school. In the early years, there was little difference between Stephen and his peers. But as he got older, it did become clear that he was struggling with his schoolwork, and he was provided with extra help in key subjects. Nevertheless, Stephen's parents never lost sight of the fact that he had been so severely ill that he may not have survived, and they were immensely proud of the progress that he had made and the way that he dealt with his difficulties. I never saw Stephen complain, and it was always a delight to meet with him and his parents in clinic. Like them, I have never forgotten how sick he was and how the incredible support he received from all the staff on the intensive care unit, in the ward, and subsequently in the community contributed to his amazing progress. At that time, there was a great deal of interest in rye-like conditions, and there was a lot of work going on to try to recognise specific inborn errors of metabolism that presented with a rye-like picture. This was going on in many parts of the country, and the fact that we were seeing so many cases in Glasgow meant that we collaborated with a number of different centres. One of the centres where there was considerable interest in a specific group of conditions which could present in this way was Sheffield, and I spent considerable time liaising with the senior metabolic scientist there. Little did I realise that in only a few years I would be moving to Sheffield as a consultant and working closely with that same individual. We also collaborated with colleagues in Newcastle. I will never forget a rapid car journey down the West Coast motorway from Glasgow to Carlisle, carrying in dry ice a sample of muscle tissue from a child in intensive care. We strongly suspected an underlying mitochondrial disorder, and the quickest way of getting the sample to the laboratory in Newcastle was for me to drive from Glasgow to the first motorway junction in England, where my counterpart from Newcastle met me and took the sample to his lab. From the time the muscle sample was taken in York Hill to its arrival in Newcastle was only two and a half hours. I very much doubt that we could have found a courier to transport it more rapidly. My first year as a senior registrar passed in a flash and I met numerous children, young people and their families. I began to feel that I was developing an understanding of child neurology and became increasingly confident to make decisions. Of course, almost all of what I encountered was new, and I had to spend a lot of time reading, as well as discussing the children with my consultant. I learned that while it was important to know a lot, it was even more important to know what I didn't know, and where to go to find the answers. I will return to some of those children in future episodes of my podcast. However, as part of my training in child neurology, I needed to have an understanding of adult neurology. In those days, it was necessary to spend a year immersed in adult neurology in order to be recognised as a specialist child neurologist. This was an amazing experience. In the next episode, we will discuss some of the people I met and the lessons I learned. Although the neurological conditions were very different from those seen in children, and, as a result, the diagnostic approach was also very different, the experience was invaluable. Nevertheless, I certainly realised that while I found the work interesting there, it didn't inspire me, and I definitely didn't feel the passion that I did working with children. 
next episode will drop in two weeks. I hope you will join me then. In the meantime, feel free to visit my website, childrensdoctortales.co.uk, where you can sign up to my mailing list. In the near future, I hope to be able to bring additional material to subscribers. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please come back for the next episode, where I'll be telling more stories of amazing children and their families. Goodbye. Goodbye.